Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast, we'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Hi Ian. What have we got tonight then? I think notice you've got some stuff about all the new Amazon announcements, um, then a bunch of kind of CPU and GPU related news stroke follow-up. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. It's been a busy couple of weeks. The show notes are sort of packed. We've had to move some stuff to future shows because they're not time sensitive. But yeah, there's plenty to talk about here. Um, so we'll start with the first thing, which is AMD of today have finally announced their play in the deep learning market. Yeah, fully announced. They've kind of been saying for a while now that oh yeah we're going to do deep learning honest and then everyone's kind of gone well you're rubbish for it but they've now announced their pro- what their product will be called and it's going to be called instinct and it's basically the existing fire pros kind of repurposed a bit there's some like have you looked at the details of this yet i've had a quick look through it i see they've got some nice things like gd gddr5x um yeah not the high bandwidth memory but there's there's some weird um they're using 28 nanometer parts for the middle range one it's basically an r9 fury okay um which is a bit weird but then when you read through it it kind of makes a bit more sense because they're kind of middle spec part it's only got four gig of ram and it's 28 nanometers so you're thinking what are they doing but that's it's got a lot you know it's a lot of flops it's putting out like seven teraflops or something so it's yeah 8.2 yeah uh i don't actually have the page open in front of me it's just off the top of my head but um so that's interesting in that they are presumably positioning it as um, a card for running inference. So you don't train on this, you train on something else and then all you have to do is load the model and push data through it. Yeah, yeah. they actually, in the, the sort of three cards they've sort of shown off or mentioned today, they actually make a point that one, one of them is a training ex- training accelerator and the other two are inference cards. So. Yeah, and then as uh, if we drop in a link to that Nantech article, that's they kind of get the hit the nail on the head there when they point out it's all about the CPU library. I mean, I'm not going to be running anything on an AMD GPU until uh, it's as easy as running an Nvidia one, and I've got a good reason to. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a little bit of chat in the Hacker News thread about what um, AMD's um, play on the software side is going to be, and it looks like they're sort of providing tools that actually let you run. CUDA applications on top of whatever they're going to, whatever their own library is called. Um, someone's ported the F Cafe already and has that working. So, yeah, that's interesting. I'd be interested in getting my hands on one of these just to see what the performance is like. But um, yeah, because it will all come down to performance. Because it's not that you need to persuade people to buy these instead of Nvidia. You need to get them off the Nvidia cards they're already running on. Yeah, but they do have one kind of advantage, which is they might actually finally give you a reason to buy an AMD CPU in the performance space. Yeah, just to match it up. Um, but no, the other interesting thing is their future server-side chips, and this is all targeted at server-side, um, are rumoured to have 64 PCI Express lanes per socket. So that means you can then, unlike Intel, you could put four cards on full bandwidth PCI Express links per CPU socket. Yeah. Which is interesting. So you know, reduce latency, reduce bandwidth, and they do appear to be targeting um, really scaling out these things to many, many GPUs per system and indeed per rack. Yeah, they're already talking about um, 120 GPU rack systems. Yeah, the power, the quoted power figures they give seem quite impressive. The sort of performance to power looks looks to be quite good. Um, it's not quite where Nvidia is at the high end, but it's it's competitive. I'd yeah. Say. I kind of feel the problem here is that yeah, it'll be getting people to get into it. The big advantage NVIDIA have is you've probably already got an NVIDIA GPU in your system anyway. Yeah. 
AMD are also going to have to improve their Linux drivers a lot because that's a, a big a big deal. That's why people have NVIDIA GPUs anyway because you're running Linux for your serious science and uh, that means NVIDIA because AMD don't work that well. Yeah, there's some sort of ker- kerfuffle going on just now between some of the, I think the Linux kernel maintainers and AMD about some sort of feature that AMD want to support but the Linux kernel maintainers want it in some different part of the kernel. Um, so there seems to be a few dust-ups of that sort of shape with amd yeah but to be fair at least they are opening they open their code and stuff and it's far more open than video yeah so i guess moving on to gpus of next i've kind of got another gpu topic in here which i thought was interesting which was a, a set of slides published on intel gpu design so sorry i'm skipping over a few topics in the show notes here just to keep the yep gpu stuff together um can't remember where i saw this linked from but um I just thought it was really interesting because they go into really quite a lot of detail about how their how their GPUs are built. You know, what are all the parts that goes into a modern GPU? How do they all work together and so on? Yeah, there's there's quite a lot of information in this um, set of slides. It's quite surprising actually for a, something that's released publicly. Um, but yeah, there's some certainly some interesting stuff here. I saw an article sort of related to this this week saying that um, Nvidia's it was a tweet by one of the Antec guys, I think. Um, Nvidia's licensing or Intel's licensing of Nvidia patents is due up at the end of this year, I think. Interesting. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not they've licensed it again, or whether they think they've got enough of their own tech to go it alone. Yeah. So I mean, it's, yeah. If, if anyone listening is interested, how does the GPU actually work? Go and have a look at these slides. It's uh, quite interesting. So I guess staying on Intel. You got some links in here with some information on the um, Xeon 5s. Yeah, so it's documentation, everyone's favourite. This is a Agner CPU blog, um, and this is a um, a gentleman or a, a, a bunch of people that um, basically com- compile information about um, CPUs. And this is their documentation and information about the Knight's Landing Xeon 5. And I've described this as the Cola Super, super Deep of uh, CPU information, like the stuff these guys have found out about these processors and documented is pretty amazing. Um, This is worth a look if you like looking really, really deep at how how these things work. Yeah, they got the example code here where they're talking about um, assembly function libraries and things like that, so it's it's really um, super, yeah, super low level. yeah, this is, this is interesting. I'll have to have a proper read through this at some point. Yeah, the, the gentleman who runs it, um, Agnari, goes by. He um, has his own vector class library. Um, and as part of this article, he announces he's now got support for AVX 512, the Xeon Phi Knight's Landing being one of the few chips that currently supports it. And so, they, yeah, these guys are properly working at the deep end of this sort of stuff. Yeah, you're talking about the documentation. We should put in this little link here that the Intel x86 documentation now has more pages than the 6502 had transistors. <laughs> yeah, um, I now want this documentation just to have it. I think it's like four or five books. It's a couple of hundred quid if you can actually find a copy of it. Um, yeah, but it'd be a fun monitor stand. <laughs> it might, might make your monitor a bit high. I think that's <laughs> it. <laughs> we get a lowered section of the desk so I could use all... So you see more pages than the 6502 has transistors, but how, how many is that? Oh, it's 7,000-something. I haven't actually got the page open. Oh, here we go, 4,181 pages. <clears throat> oh, and that's just the 
Intel 64 and IE32 architecture software developer manuals. That, that's not even like the chip manuals. No, so. it's not the chip manuals. Yeah. Oh, that's mad. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. But then now what I want to know is how many pages of documentation did the 6502 had? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a, a deep rabbit hole on eBay, I think you might be descending into again. <laughs> we'll have a look um, after the show. So this is, this is an interesting new Intel thing you've put in here. Um, unlocked i3 CPUs. Yeah, so traditionally, there's never been an unlocked um, i3. i3 is Intel's third-tier consumer processor line, Yeah. Um, where you get no turbo, but you do get hyper-threading. Um, and yeah, never had an unlocked one before. And this is one that comes in at... Oh, I've forgotten the numbers already. Um, yeah, boost frequency of 3.2 out of the box. I think it's 3.9 or 4.0 base. Um, 4.2 boost, default it looks like, out of the box. So that's that's quite a high, a high turbo anyway. So you'd, The interesting thing about this is, I guess... This this used to be where all the excitement was in overclocking. Buy a cheap CPU and uh, clock it up fast to uh, get some good value. So maybe yeah. this is a return to this? Yeah, know. it depends how cheap it is. I mean, the, the the price estimates I saw put it at about £200. So it's actually... It's cheaper than an i5, an unlocked i5 and an unlocked i7, but it's still quite expensive, especially considering you can... Uh, you can overclock most i3s using the frequency method rather than fiddling with the multiplier. Um, but it'll be interesting to see to see how high this can go because it is only two cores inside a package, so it could go yeah. reasonably high. It's it's quite an exciting thing for a sort of as you say budget minded gamer who's willing to overclock. Okay, so I guess we should um, keep on the Intel news here. We, um, you've got the link in here about the Intel self-driving cars. I mean, this is. Really, I mean, who's not making self-driving cars now? Yeah, this is a bit of a, I don't want to say fluff piece, but it's a PR thing for Intel. And basically, they're they're just saying they're announcing investment into their own tools and some partnerships and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, every, everybody's had this sort of announcement recently. And this this will be because they'll want to demo, like this is the hot application topic for deep learning at the moment, and they'll be wanting to sell nice landing chips for deep learning, so they'll need... To demonstrate, you can use it for the the current hot hot area. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm just looking at their uh, their coming flood of data and autonomous vehicle slide here. Only twenty to forty megabytes a second from their cameras. They could be getting far more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think they mean um, cameras that they can produce in volume when you've got like eight or nine of them on a car. Yeah, well, you can you can easily be doing five hundred megs a second from a camera. <laughs> something nice yeah you have to replace the ssds in your car once a week because they've been <laughs> overwritten too many times yeah yeah Intel sell you a nice uh, high endurance ssd as well so, yeah um so next up you've got something about um x86 emulation on top of arm processors which is microsoft and qualcomm yeah i was thinking so this is yeah it's basically exactly what you said there so the idea being you can run windows you can get windows 10 on a Qualcomm ARM chip and then still run specifically Win32 not 64-bit but because I, I suspect they're actually emulating somewhere in the OS level not down at the instruction level Okay. Um, hence Win32 specific and also this avoids them licensing the instruction set from Intel Yeah. Um, but I was kind of thinking why were they doing this and I, was in, I think I was listening to ATP earlier actually where they're talking about this and saying oh you know Windows RT wasn't successful and stuff and I was thinking well what what is the point of this? Because if you if you just run a regular Windows app on an ARM tablet or whatever, 
it's not rubbish because it's emulated and it's slow and it's not rubbish you know it, it's not rubbish for any, the reason it's not any good is because it's not got the UI designed for it it's yeah. just not going to be usable Yeah. so it almost doesn't matter that you can't run these existing Windows apps in that situation because why would you want to Yeah. Okay. Um, but the interesting point that I thought of is this makes do you know Windows 10 Continuum thing you know what that is? Is this where it's unified across all our devices? And... No, Continuum is the thing where you dock your phone into a monitor or whatever and you get a full desktop experience ah, okay. running, running for phone. Now, that starts to make sense to me because now, up until now, that as a cell, you know, okay, you plug it into a keyboard and a mouse and key and monitor and whatever and you've got a full Windows PC experience. Only it's not. It's only the apps that have been compiled for ARM. But now suddenly you can argue that, oh, well, you can run all your old Windows apps as well. It's backwards compatible. Yep. And then also the problem you say, well, okay, emulation, that's going to, you know, cost you power. That can't be very power efficient. Well, it doesn't matter because you just plug the thing in, right? Yep. So that starts to make that more of a compelling um, proposition there, that one computer for everything sort of argument. Um, the counter argument is of course if you're plugging your phone into a screen to use it like a normal computer then why not just have a computer in the screen because computers are cheap yeah I, I had been wondering what had happened to the Windows RT thing because when they first announced the Surface tablets a few years ago there was like a, a separate RT version and then like an x86 version and I'd never heard much more about the RT version since then it died because x86 got low enough power to yeah. that niche yeah so uh, yeah, I do, I do wonder what the what the actual consumer use for this is but I guess we'll see I mean, this is them just announcing that the technology exists and they've got a video showing it running in Photoshop which seems quite heavy but it seems the video it looks like it runs okay so yeah it'll be, it'll be interesting to see I kind, I kind of think it's only ever going to be a stopgap but it's kind of them betting against x86 hedging their bets really yeah um, so is that the end of the Intel stuff you've put in something here about Bluetooth a bit randomly yeah so this? there's the Bluetooth consortium announced this week that Bluetooth 5 is now available as always Bluetooth 5 is a uh, more range and lower power that's what every version of Bluetooth has um, and John Gruber quoted a little bit of this on Daring Fireball and, and quoted himself from a year ago and saying next year it will work great should be the motto of Bluetooth which is entirely true Apparently, Bluetooth 5 has something about making pairing easier. Um, I've not actually looked into it. I don't have a big deal with problems, a great deal of problems with Bluetooth. It generally works for me. And in terms of making pairing easier, if you've ever, like any modern Android device which pairs with Bluetooth, they nearly all do NFC pairing. You just tap the devices together and they're paired. Yep. Um, Which, you know, it's not a technological thing, It's it's a will Apple adopt it thing, to be frank. Yeah. Yeah, Bluetooth's always been um, touted since the very first version is it's going to be in everything. Your fridge is going to be run, running Bluetooth. And even in this press release, that's the kind of thing they're saying, but it's yet to happen. I don't know. I, I lose Bluetooth all day, every day, connected to my Pebble. Connect, you connect to a Bluetooth speaker several times a day, most days. And yeah, no real problems with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have the same. Like Once it's, once it's, once it's all hooked up and everything's working together, it seems fine. Um, it's always just the getting it connected but if you're not on an NFC device that's the difficulty okay so I think our main like big topic we've got for tonight 
which I'm quite interested in hearing from you about actually because I've not all got around to watching the keynotes or anything but it's the big AWS announcement yes yeah, so, web services yeah so AWS every once a year they have a big conference called reinvent um and this year, I mean, like, they just announced, it's overwhelming all the announcements. They just announced so many new products and so many parts and new products. And even, like, they released a new um, region that went online today, I think, um, in Canada. And they recently, recently announced one in Frankfurt. Um, but there's a, a, bunch of talk, a bunch of product announcements and a bunch of talks. And one of the talks is given by James Hamilton. He's their sort of... I can't remember his actual title. He's the head of engineering at Amazon, at AWS, and he sort mm-hmm. of he's the he's the big man. I don't know how much day to day stuff he does. He gave a a keynote. It's about an hour and a half long. The first forty five minutes is absolutely worth your time if you're interested in how big Amazon is and what they do to maintain their scale. The second forty five minutes is some fluff about replacing mainframes and then they've got some NASA GPL guys on to talk about how they handle their data using the AWS, the data that comes from their robots and rovers and that sort of thing. Uh, but the first 45 minutes it runs through all their innovations from the last few years. I mean I've picked out a few highlights here. Um, okay so I was just going to say like the, the scale of AWS is incredible. I mean you say all the stuff they're announcing but I mean there are companies running services in AWS and they have millions of dollars a month AWS bills. I mean, this is... Yeah, I mean, a prime example is Netflix. Netflix have mm-hmm. a bill that must be millions of dollars a month easily. You know, a thousands, if not tens of thousands of instances are machines. Um, they talked about how big their data centers are, how they're made up. I think uh, each building, they only put, like, I think it's fifty to 90,000 servers in it only. Um, <laughs> other people build bigger... Uh, facilities but they just think that the risk of having fewer bigger facilities isn't worth it and um, they prefer to have many more smaller facilities so instead of putting 200,000 servers in they can just put yeah 50 to 90 I think I said before and um, they run their own fiber across the oceans and um, they're buying other people's fiber across the oceans to get them connected up and um, I haven't got a, a link to it here but in the video they talk about designing their own um, power supply and power switching gear for inside their uh, data centers because they dis- disagreed with how their vendors hired handled some failure modes. Um, the vendors would actually cut the power to the data center rather than risking damaging a you know, three quarter of a million dollar generator. Whereas Amazon would lose more money cutting the data center than they would just destroy in a generator by accident and the risk's hmm. tiny so they designed their own switch gear that makes the different choice um, so what else did you pick out of this you know, there was a few interesting things here yeah so the amazon's been designing their own switches they've been doing this for a while it's part of their software design software defined networking that lets all their services work um, and these things are powered by asics um or asics um they, they showed off the model they used, but also made a point of mentioning all the other vendors they can buy these from. So they're obviously trying to play all the vendors for price because they buy a lot of these. Um, but the ASICs are using are 7 billion transistors. Each one handles 120 ports of 25 gigabit Ethernet. That's 3.2 wow. terabits per second total without any blocking. Um, the 25. Yeah, really mad. The 25 gig Ethernet thing's interesting as well because rather than going to 40 like a lot of other people are doing, they're going to 25. Um, Make the cabling easier, I'd imagine. 
makes the cabling easier, yeah. Um, and plus, when you actually add more ports, you're doing less bonding on each port, so it actually makes the hardware easier at each end. Um, he's got a whole bit about why they chose that number over other numbers uh, in the talk. Um, they're also designing their own network interface cards. I think a few weeks ago we talked about Microsoft. Yep, and their FPGAs at the edges, so FPGAs on the network interface rather than connected to the CPU. Yeah, ex- exactly. So this is exactly the same thing. Um, but Amazon are actually using, are, are designing and fab, not they'll, someone else would be fabbing it for them, but it's their own silicon. It's not an ASIC or an FPGA. Um they're dropping as much of the networking work out of the kernel as possible and running it on the hardware. Um, part of that's efficiency gains. They get to free up CPU resources to actually sell to customers. Um, and part of it's security. They reckon it's harder for a, a rogue actor to break out of the the jail provided by the virtual machines um, and then interfere with other network traffic. Um yeah, that's those two things, the ASICs and their own switches and their own silicon for the network interface cards are seriously impressive things, which I, I guess you need to be doing when you're at Amazon scale. Um, but that's a lot of extra engineers to do both those things. And then they showed off their storage nodes. This showed off a design from 2015, which has 1,110 disks in a rack, um, which wow. means you can get 11 petabytes in with current-gen hard disks. I guess that's... Eight, eight terabyte discs, something like okay, that. Okay, so just to give you an idea how mad that is, right? Everyone always um, links to Backblaze stuff when you're talking about crazy numbers of storage, right? Backblaze are doing 4.8 petabytes a rack. Amazon are doing serious, serious density with this. It'd be interesting to see how they would do it. Um, I'll actually need to look and see if they've released more information about that rack, of, that disc rack last year. Um, but yeah, this thing weighs 1,262 kilos. Or two thousand seven hundred and seventy-eight pounds for those uh, using Imperial. Yeah, so I put a link into the back, please. Details of what they do. Cool, and then they showed off their compute nodes, um, which look at a, a pizza box rack mount case. But when they actually show them off, they're half full. Like the whole back half of the case has nothing in it. And Is that for make, cooling? It's yeah, it's for power and for thermal efficiency. Ease of servicing, maybe. Just just the cooling and efficiency thing. They found they could get. Most of their costs are in cooling and providing power to the servers, not so much in the the space for the servers themselves. So they can actually get a more power-efficient server um, by making them less dense. Um, They they get a half to a third the number of servers in a given volume than, say, cloud servers from Dell or Supermicro do, but they get a far higher power efficiency. efficiency. It's interesting they've gone for optimising for that there, but then their storage are clearly optimising for density because that's insane density. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if some of it's to do with the, the disks maybe don't run as hot or run more efficiently or, you know, there, there must be some sort of calculation going on there. Um, it'd be interesting that they're never going to release this stuff because this is their secret sauce, but, you know, they're making trade-offs on all sorts of things all the time, so the rack design might change next year and it'll be different again. Um yeah, different. I'd like to see their GPU instances as well. Like, how are they laid out? Okay, so that yeah, that video is hundred percent worth your time. Everyone should go and watch it, or at least the first forty-five minutes. There's some great information in there. So this is um, what's this next one? You got AWS Snowball Edge Lambda and a Snowball Appliance. So Snowball is the um, they send you a box that you can load up with data and send back to them, right? Yeah, it's just like a big plastic box with like a, what looks like an iPad screen on it and a ten gigabit Ethernet. Um, 
link on it and they now have it you, they, they send it over to you you load it with data you send it back to them they upload it to Amazon S3 or Glacier or whatever storage service you're using they now have a version this version called Snowball Edge which lets you run AWS Lambda um, Lambda function so that that's just running little scripts basically but yeah, so how it, does that work where does that actually run so, so the Lambda scripts are quite often run off triggers you can't really address them directly there's no port to get them so you have a trigger say a new file appears in S3 do this work on it and then shut down and the Lambda job runs for a few seconds and maybe oh. gather some metadata or something so the idea okay, with this, so is, this is you, you could drop import. a file on it and then it could gather some metadata in the box and then just store the metadata on the box so it's ready to go when it gets to Amazon does it run it on the box or does it run it when they do the import? I think it must run it on the box because you could do it when you do the import previously it's as well. Here, da, da, da. using the process data as it is uploaded to an S3 bucket associated with Snowball Edge. That's so, that's yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just when you upload it. Maybe previously it didn't actually work like that, which seems a bit mm. odd. Well, still interesting. Interesting way of getting large amounts of data or reasonably yeah. large amounts of data. If you want to get very large amounts of data, <laughs> they've got this mad thing. Yeah, they've got the announced them AWS Snowmobile, obviously sticking with the sort of snow naming thing for their storage devices. And basically, they send a truck round to your building. Um, it lets you move a hundred petabytes of data at one time. I, this is weird. This seems like one of the things they just do for the PR, right? Because who wants to do this? Like yeah. they've only got a few customers, surely. Yeah, so it's, it's a ruggedized, tamper-resistant shipping container, forty-five feet long, nine point six feet wide, and eight feet high. It is water-resistant, climate-controlled, and can be parked in a covered or uncovered area adjacent to your existing data center. Each snowmobile consumes about three hundred and fifty kilowatts of AC, AC power. If you don't have sufficient capacity on site, we can arrange for a generator. And then they've got an API for it. <laughs> like. Who uses this? Really, this is like you're migrating from Azure to Amazon or something, and they do this or something like that. This is crazy, right? It is pretty much exactly that situation you described. That's all I can imagine. Netflix have decided to move all their data at once. This is what they're going to use to do it. Um, and you pay by provisioned capacity. Um, so you want to move fifty terabytes? They send a. I don't know whether they send a fifty terabyte truck round or they just charge you for fifty terabytes. Petabytes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, box. right, yeah. They're very small truck for 50 terabytes. Um, a very remote control truck. But, um, yeah, that's that's how you pay. That's what I was interested in. How How is this thing priced? And they've got a nice... Their release post has a nice sort of... I don't know how... Lego explanation. It's, yeah, Lego explanations of the discussions that went into making this, including like a... A, a scale model truck in the Lego world, and then an actual truck in the Lego world. It's a, it's a yeah, it's an interesting thing. It reminds me of the containerized data centers that everyone touted for a few years. Everyone was going to build them in, and I think the only people that have used them so far are Facebook and Google before they've got before they've moved any particular facility to something more. Oh, they've got an example permanent. customer here. It's Digital Globe are moving to AWS. And they've got 100 petabytes of satellite imagery. Because they've been doing satellite imagery for like 16 years or something. Yeah. So. Um, that's why that makes sense. They're probably the customer and then they've done it once. So they figure... They can sell it. They can sell it, yeah. yeah. It's interesting they've got 100 petabytes of data. And the capacity of the snowy is 100 petabytes. 
Yeah, funny that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like, could you not have just made, like, ten petabytes and made a few trips? It's, yeah, it's interesting, though. Okay, so what what else did they announce? This, this is interesting to me. You've got elastic GPUs. How's that Th- work? This starts out is interesting, but then I'm going to disappoint you at the end. Oh, so, no. Yeah, okay. So this is basically, you can attach GPUs to any EC2 instance. So you get your compute instance, you go, I want some GPU power. And you can go and get one of these like you would get um, their network attached block storage. It works exactly the same way. Um, and they do, the, at first I thought the capacities, GPU memory capacities were a bit strange. It was 1 gig, 2 gig, 4 gig, 8 gig. It was like, that's quite small. It's not really great. Only supports OpenGL. Um, and then I noticed the examples show Windows desktop applications using them. And I was right. like, this doesn't sound useful for compute. And no, it's not. It's meant for you're running some sort of engineering application on one of their virtualized Windows instances and you want some GPU power to run the visualizations. That's what this is for. This is, I mean, I saw a few vendors offering GPU desktop as a service, yeah. as a thing at GTC. So this will. This is Amazon's play on that, I assume. Yeah. So, I mean, we might get something similar for compute in the future. It definitely seems like it's a possibility. But this ended up being like a huge rabbit hole for me. Like, how did they set this up? How did they do it? And yeah, PCIe switches is the answer. Um, and I'll link, yeah, okay. I'll link to some dull, dull Phoenix PCIe switches, um, which basically just allow you to put a rack of GPUs, a rack of GPUs, a enclosure of GPUs at the top of a rack and then feed them to all the other GPUs in sort of the same rack or adjacent racks. Um, but I'd be interested to see what performance is like on these, you know, if it would be possible to run a compute workload on them. It's probably not worth it because, I mean, even with compute workloads, you have to be careful about managing your compute load when you've got multiple GPUs in one system. Yeah. Load. Anything else, you know, you don't want to be jobs to be spanning across GPUs. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the AMD um, deep learning compute earlier on. Yeah, one of the things there is the possibility of getting 16x PCIe lanes, and this sounds like you only get 4x at most, so that's going to cut your bandwidth down quite a lot. Okay, so... The last thing you got here talking of um, exotic compute is the F1 instances, which are I had a, I did have a look at these actually. This is the FPGA equipped instances, isn't it? Yeah. So this um, is something I sort of. They have enormous FPGAs on them. They've got the really big Xilinx ones on, um, ultra scale pluses. Um, the, these are serious FPGAs, um, sixteen nanometer, sixty four gigs of RAM, across four DDR four channels for the FPGA, dedicated PCI Express X16 to the CPU. Um, yeah, a whole bunch of DSP engines and so on and so on. I mean, they've, this is serious hardware. Yeah, but. I saw a little bit of chat today when I was looking into it again where um, shops that do FPGA work, where they, they build libraries for customers to use, um, are really interested in running on these exact machines because most of them don't have access to these FPGAs yet. Like, what? FPGAs that are this big have this architecture, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the it seems like even if Amazon don't have many of these machines to start with, they'll probably all be used all the time because people just want to get up, um, will get hold of these things and actually use them and start building stuff. But this is quite similar to we've talked about Apple's sort of play in the deep learning market and how they would allow their iOS and Mac developers to make use of that, where. Amazon are providing the hardware but not many tools and I think they're hoping that a sort of what do you call it, a community of tools and people who can provide services on these will appear around it. 
Yeah, because you, you don't just write code and run it on FPGA. It's not that simple. No. I mean, it is software that defines the hardware functions, but I've done I've done a tiny amount of FPGA programming um, many years ago now, and I remember it being a real pain. It's not a, it's not easy. It's a very specialist skill set, but you can achieve you know very high performance because you're making you're effectively programming dedicated hardware to perform your task. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to look at the pricing for these, um, but I guess if you want to learn about FPGAs, it's probably quite an expensive way to do it. You're probably better buying like a small FPGA development kit from Maplin or something. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. FPGAs are not cheap, so uh, yeah, but yeah. I think, as you said, the value will be when people have libraries that run on these, and you can just uh, plug and play a few blocks together, and off you go. Yeah, I, w- I want to do some image processing. You get the the blocks for that. You set it up. You run it, and it just does the job. And then the instance gets killed afterwards. And so, I guess is this this seems related. So you've got something in here which I've not actually looked at. Some some router combo cards or something. Yeah, so this is a company that makes. This is yeah, is is very much related. This was a thing I found when I started looking into um, doing networking for with FPGAs, and this is a company that makes cards, networking cards um, with FPGAs on them, um, just designed for you know you write your own networking stack or you you buy someone else's networking stack and run it on these, and then you don't have to run your networking in the kernel. Very similar to what Amazon's doing with its own silicon. This is a that. Libe Router website, L-I-B-E Router, um, and they provide a whole bunch of different cards with different port specifications and different FPGAs on them. Um, I just thought this was quite interesting hardware. Okay, so they're talking about 100 gigabit through to RAM, so that's for, for very, very fast networking. Yeah, yeah, it's seriously fast, low network um, networking. I guess yeah, um, it could have some compute applications, especially given the speeds that these things run at. Um, you could maybe do this sort of thing what's the high bandwidth network in the locks of a uh, um, big clusters use i don't know i in, don't really in, know a lot about that infiniband ah yeah okay yeah. yeah yeah um all right so that's that's quite interesting definitely gonna have to dig into this some more hopefully uh, if anyone finds anything particularly interesting nuggets of information and all this do let us know um yeah, I think that's all we've got today. Okay, so thanks for listening to Pincount. Show notes are online at pincountpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Douglas F. Shearer, and you can find Ian on Twitter at the underscore accidental. You can follow the show note, the show at Pincount Podcast. We'd love to get your feedback. Tweet us or use the hashtag AskPincount. For longer feedback, or if you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the API documentation and CAD drawings, email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. So left that as a service, what? <laughs> yeah, so so last time we talked about, um, oh, we ended up talking about in the after show some, a JavaScript project I was working on that had many, many dependencies. I actually found another one I worked on that had 27,000 dependencies. You can see a, a screenshot for that in the show notes for the last episode. But one of the things I talked about was a kerfuffle about um, LeftPad. Um, there was a library right, called yeah. LeftPad and NPM the developer deleted it and it turned out tens of thousands of projects relied on it and they all failed during deployment and build and all that sort of thing the same day. So there was a bit of debate about why is something such as left padding a string a library? Now, it, it does seem silly. Most projects you'd be as well just writing your own one um, rather than importing hundreds or thousands of other dependencies. But someone as a joke wrote left pad as a service, which is actually a a web service that will left pad the string for you.
I'm just looking at this, this is hilarious. Leftpad.io is 100% REST compliant as defined by some guy on Hacker News with maximal opinions and minimal evidence. <laughs> <laughs>